Welcome to the ISA Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This is Dr. Tom Smiley at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory, host of this podcast series, which is brought to you by the International Society of Arboriculture and the F.A. Bartlett Tree Expert Company. Today's podcast is by Dr. Greg Moore, who is a senior research associate at the University of Melbourne Burnley campus in Australia. He will be speaking on minimizing hazards arising from lignotubers and epicormic shoots. Good day to you all at this uh, unusual ISA seminar online, uh, and I'm really looking forward to presenting my topic on minimizing the hazard and risks that may arise from the development of lignotubers and epicormic shoots. It's the first time I've spoken on this topic to an ISA conference and lignotuberous shoots and epicormic shoots are amongst my favourite of the adaptations of tree species to environmental stresses. They are, of course, wonderful assets uh, for anyone who's managing significant populations of uh, urban trees. And this presentation explores the characteristics of lignotuberous and epicormic shoots uh, that are relevant to uh, arborists and the role of the dormant buds and the root system in uh, the production of uh, messmate stringy bark, uh, epicormic and lignotuberous shoots. Uh, messmate stringy bark is eucalyptus obliqua, a very widespread and important species of eucalypt growing in southeastern Australia. It's a little bit of an unusual species in that uh, it has a number of uh, ecotypic populations that are stress tolerant. They're all stress tolerant with fantastic adaptations to various stresses such as fire or coastal position. And these stresses include uh, sclerophyllous leaves, a thicker bark than many similar eucalypts, uh, epicormic buds, and unusually in most, but not all populations of the species, there are lignotubers present. We'll come back and talk about the presence and absence of lignotubers uh, later on in the talk. Of course, this makes Eucalyptus obliqua a very good species to study in terms of the role of the lignotuber and to a lesser degree, epicormic shoots in stress recovery, particularly after events such as bushfires or as you would say, wildfires. Um, dormant buds in general are vital ingredients in stress ecology uh, and the responses associated with it. And they're very useful to us in arboriculture, uh, in young specimens, for example, they really do facilitate um, uh, um, formative pruning, uh, allow us to do things with the young trees that we mightn't otherwise be able to do. And in mature specimens, they're really important in terms of maintaining the uh, lifespan and the amenity potential of trees, particularly if they've been uh, damaged or perhaps poorly pruned. For all of that, it's surprising how often epicormic and lignotuberous buds are underappreciated by arborists and tree managers. And in the slides at the bottom of this particular uh, slide, or the, the photographs at the bottom of this particular slide, you see a, a time lapse, if you like, of an urban tree that has been removed at ground level. And four weeks later, the uh, lignotuberous shoots are shooting up little, lots of little red uh, shoots. And then after another four weeks, we've got quite a number of quite large green shoots developing. All of this has happened in a matter of eight weeks. So it shows you just how quickly things can change, how many of these shoots can be produced, and how important they can be in managing trees and getting your, your full value from uh, the presence of an urban tree. In the case of lignotubers, um, these are structures that grow below the ground. They're protected by soil 
And so the excellent insulating properties of soil means that the lignotubers often survive uh, even quite severe and, and, and uh, very, very high temperature bushfires when other structures don't. Epicormic buds are also protected, usually by a thick bark, but sometimes by uh, other plant structures such as fruits or foliage. Uh, and sometimes those other structures might come as a surprise. You don't normally think of a fruit, for example, such as the fruit on the horse chestnut as protecting the buds and tissues um, under or uh, within those particular fruits. So these are all dormant buds and they are of great importance in the survival and persistence of trees growing in adverse conditions. And after a damage that might be caused by the wind or hail, drought, salt, waterlogging, fire, uh, snow, grazing, and of course, insect attack. The full range of stresses that before the canopy of a tree, um, epicormic buds and lignotuberous buds are adapted to providing some sort of response uh, and some sort of ongoing biology. In Australia, there is a, a, an unusual, perhaps a more general interest in these lignotubers and epicormic shoots uh, within the public. And this is primarily due to their important role during and after forest fires and their role in public health and safety. For all of that, they're poorly understood. And about every five to 10 years, uh, someone in Australia is killed by a large falling epicormic shoot that is usually described in the media as a falling branch, but of course it's not a branch. Uh, and uh, it just reveals how poorly these very common structures are understood both within the profession and by the general public. Some lignotubers are absolutely massive and you can see here uh, a very large old eucalypt, a eucalypt uh, that has a girth perhaps of um, eight, nine, even 10 uh, meters, uh, a diameter of something around uh, five, even six meters uh, is not uncommon. And these massive lignotubers, uh, most of which is still underground and largely unseen, uh, are often indica indicative of very old age. So we know that for the tree species that possess lignotubers, very often the organism itself is much, much older than the current trunk that it might possess. And of course, this applies to many Australian species, but also uh, to some of your redwoods. Now, let's have a look at uh, the difference between lignotubers and epicormic buds so that we actually know where they are, what they do and how they're formed, because their anatomy for very, very important And you might say, well, well, a biological point of view, very Greg. important, but also Greg. from Greg. a legal and management perspective. Yeah. Can you hear me? You you were breaking up really, really fast there. Um, um, can you hear okay. me now? Sorry. Do you, do you want to start again? Yes, I can hear you very clearly. Yeah, you might be able to. Give me give me one moment. I'm going to try something on my end. I super apologize. This might be on me. Um, I'm going to try something on my end, and um, we, we can start. And uh, again, apologies for making you stop and start. Let me uh, let me check something out really quickly. Yep, and I'll be Thank right back. Um, Good day to everyone at this unusual ISA online. Uh, I'm delighted to be here, and I'm very happy to be talking about minimizing the hazard and risk that may arise from the development of lignotuberous and epicormic shoots. It's the first time that I've had the opportunity of talking to the ISA about lignotuberous and epicormic buds and shoots. And they're amongst my favorite adaptations that our uh, trees have to the stresses of uh, everyday living in an urban environment. And lignotuberous and epicormic buds are real arboricultural assets with uh, significant potential for their role in tree management. Uh, this presentation is going to explore certain of the characteristics of lignotuberous and epicormic shoots that are relevant to arborists, 
and the role that dormant buds and the root system play in shoot production in messmate stringy bark, eucalyptus obliqua, which is a very common uh, and important eucalypt in southeastern Australia, uh, produces a wonderful timber and so is of commercial significance and has been for well over a century. The species is a little bit unusual and a very useful plant uh, for the study of epicormic and lignotuberous uh, shoots because it has a number of different ecotypic uh, populations. Uh, these populations are stress tolerant and fire resistant with adaptations such as uh, sclerophyllous leaves, a thicker bark than many similar eucalypts, epicormic buds, and in most, but not all populations, it has lignotubers. And we'll see where the uh, population differences can have significance a little bit later on in the presentation. Dormant buds are vital ingredients in uh, tree stress ecology responses, and they're useful to arborists in a, in a variety of ways. Perhaps the most obvious are in young trees, they allow us to undertake formative pruning. Um, their presence of particularly epicormic buds gives us a flexibility uh, and a, a, an option, a number of options when we're formatively pruning. Uh, but in mature specimens, uh, they're great in terms of uh, our structural pruning, but they also allow us to realise the full amenity potential and lifespans of older trees. Uh, in At the bottom of this slide, you can see three little images, and they're essentially a time lapse of a tree that has been removed at ground level. And four weeks later, you can see all of the little red epicormic shoots coming up from around the base of the tree. And a mere four weeks again, you've got much larger green shoots. Uh, and this is the tree renewing itself. It's amazing how quickly these shoots develop and how quickly the response is underway. It's also surprising how often epicormic and lignotuberous shoots and buds are underappreciated and underused by arborists and urban tree managers. The presence of lignotubers below the ground means that they're protected by the wonderful insulating properties of soil from many stresses, including bushfires. And similarly, epicormic buds are often protected by a thick bark or in some cases by other plant structures, such as fruits or foliage. Uh, it's hard to believe or imagine that fruits can be insulating mechanisms but for example, the fruits on a horse chestnut produce, uh, protect the buds that are protected behind the fruit or within the fruit. These dormant buds are of great importance in the survival and persistence of trees under adverse growing conditions or after damage due to wind, hail, drought, salt, waterlogging, fire, snow, grazing, or even insect attack. Almost any stress that you can think of Epicormic and lignotuberous buds have some sort of role in the tree's response. In Australia, there is a much greater and wider public interest in both lignotuberous and epicormic buds, mainly because of bushfires and the role that they have in regenerating the forests after fire. And then they have their role in human health and safety. For all this, they're relatively poorly understood. And every five to 10 years, someone is killed by a large falling epicormic shoot, usually described in the media as a falling branch. Of course, the anatomy of an epicormic shoot and of a branch can be quite different, as we'll see in a few minutes' time. So there's a general public interest, and yet for all of that, these structures are still poorly understood and very often poorly managed. Some lignotubers are absolutely massive. In this particular slide, you can see the base of a large old eucalyptus camelgulensis, the famous river red gum. Some of them have a uh, diameter at breast height of between four and five metres, so they can be massive in girth. And these shoots, these trunks, May not, may not be the only trunk 
that such a tree has had. So it's possible that the organism itself is much, much older than the current trunks that it possesses. And of course, in that case, some of these trees may be amongst the oldest living things on our planet. And that's the case, for example, with some of your redwoods. Lignotuberous buds and epicormic buds are, of course, quite different, and they're very different in their origin, anatomy, and development. So let's just consider some of these aspects of their development prior to looking at their more practical role. Now, lignotubers are, in fact, modified stems. They develop from axillary buds at the first, second, or third leaf nodes when the plant is very young, and they contain a great many bud traces. And by a great many, uh, it can be many, many thousands of bud traces. They're part of the normal growth and development of the species that possess them. And they're both storage organs uh, because they are capable of storing considerable amounts of carbohydrate, uh, but they're also reservoirs of protected dormant buds. When lignotuberous shoots develop, they develop as the replacement of stems and trunks, and they possess the properties of the stems and trunks that they replace, because after all, they're clonal material. Lignotuberous shoots are usually soundly attached to the root system, and typically they provide a very rapid and safe replacement of the stem or trunk. In this particular slide, you can see the lignotubers of a seedling that have been uh, arrowed. And on the left, you can see a diagram showing the nodal positions and the lignotuberous swellings usually develop at the first, second and third nodal position. Uh, they can develop a little higher up, uh, but buds higher up than the fourth nodal position are nearly always uh, other dormant buds, possibly axillary or epicormic. And uh, that, that enables you to tell the difference. And although the um, lignotuber begins as a swelling above the ground, as the tree grows, it's incorporated into the trunk or it grows downward into the ground. So you normally don't see it on a mature specimen. There are many members of the Myrtaceae uh, that possess lignotubers, but so too do other gen uh, genera, such as the uh, ginkgo, uh, the coastal redwood, uh, some of the maples, the bay laurel. Uh, there can be a problem, for example, with lignotuberous recovery in rhododendron that sees them as a weed in some parts of Europe. And of course, the huckleberry. Uh, in some parts of the world, lignotubers are called basal burls or basal uh, collars, just depending on where you are. The, technic the technical term, though, should be lignotuber. Uh, and it's just a matter of getting into the habit of using the correct technical term. Uh, epicormic buds, of course, uh, develop from dormant buds on woody stems or shoots by definition, and they're found in a wide range of tree species from families such as the Pinaceae, the Betulaceae, the Fagaceae, the Olmaceae, the Teleaceae, um, the uh, Oleaceae, and many others as well. Uh, epicormic shoots can grow very rapidly under uh, the right conditions, and for example, uh, it's not unusual for an epicormic shoot to grow uh, at a rate of roughly four metres per annum, uh, which can be a real advantage or a considerable problem if you're managing uh, trees uh, in urban areas around utilities. Uh, and both epicormic and lignotuberous shoots under ideal conditions may be able to grow somewhere around six metres in a year, uh, which is a, quite a prodigious rate of growth and they're capable of growing so quickly because they have access to all of the carbohydrate reserves and the root system of a mature specimen. Um, epicormic uh, buds can be seen as structures that replace branching systems and allow the, a very rapid replacement of a photosynthetic uh, canopy. Uh, in the image to the right of this slide, you can see all of these little spiny um, sort of protrusions. These are the epicormic buds that have been revealed when this tree uh, shed its bark uh, and removed its bark. The tree is dead, but you can see the epicormic buds. And you know, in this case, 
there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them around the base of the tree. Um, initially, in terms of epicormic uh, shoot anatomy, it needs to be remembered that the epicormic shoot is not a branch. It may lack sound attachment to branches and stems early on, and uh, it lacks a branch bark ridge because there is no overlapping of the branch, branch and trunk fibers as there is in the anatomy of a branch. These anatomical uh, differences between a branch and an epicormic shoot can be very important, um, both in terms of understanding the structure and the soundness of the structure of an epicormic shoot, but also in dealing with uh, the legalities that might surround the failure of an epicormic shoot. In this case, this is the classic um, Alex Shigo uh, illustration of an epicormic um, shoot developing. Uh, you can see the epicormic bud strand is uh, um, arrowed in this particular slide. And this one, just this uh, illustration, this micrograph just reminds you that initially epicormic shoots may be poorly attached to the tissues that they're growing upon. In the experimental work that's associated with this uh, uh, talk, uh, we took eucalyptus obliqua seedlings uh, approximately 300, meter, uh, 300 millimetres high uh, and with a stem caliper above the lignotuber of three to four millimetres. And we simply stressed them. And we stressed them by exposing them to temperatures from 40 to 120 degrees C for periods of time ranging from two to 128 minutes. Uh, and all of the combinations um, were, were uh, attempted. But we also tried parallel decapitations where knowing how much of the seedlings would be killed by certain heat treatments, we simply removed the level of tissue to find out whether it was the removal of the tissue or the heat that actually caused the uh, impact on the young seedlings. And we also did combinations of the treatments where we heated uh, young seedlings and then removed the damaged tissue either immediately or after a delay of a week. Uh, and this enabled us to determine whether the impact of the stress was from the heat, from the decapitation, a combination of both, and whether there was a difference between immediate or delayed uh, removal of heat damaged tissue. Uh, in the experiments, depending on the availability of the seedling material, we were able to have seven or up to 10 replicates. So the stats is pretty strong. Uh, this just illustrates the combination of the treatments that we imposed. You can see we had control, heated, heated and decapitated immediately, heated and decapitated delayed, and we had seedlings that were only decapitated. So that gives you the full range of treatments. And in this particular diagram, we, we show you the different levels of decapitation that were meant to parallel the heat treatments. And you can see here quite clearly that for more severe treatments, we decapitated much closer to the ground. Uh, and for uh, more uh, um, benign heat treatments, we might only have removed as little as 20 millimetres from the top of the seedling. So that gives you an idea of the treatments that we imposed and the range of treatments that we imposed. Um, we also grew our seedlings in a, a specially designed container with very smooth sides so that we could slide the root systems out of the container uh, to determine whether root tips were healthy. Uh, we could then uh, monitor the growth of selected root tips so that we knew if and when root tip growth had resumed after treatment. And we were able to measure the root tips using calipers uh, and we marked the roots with a, 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 a black ink, uh, a water insoluble black ink so that it didn't have an impact on the uh, tissue or on the surrounding medium. And we were then able to inspect these every week for as many weeks after treatment as we wished. Uh, as it turns out, the seedlings recovered after treatment in about 10 weeks. Uh, what we found that uh, 10 weeks after treatment, 
uh, new leaf production and the rates of height increment um, were basically the same as the control. There was no significant dif difference. So we were able to say that the uh, recovery period for these seedlings in these experiments was 10 weeks. Uh, we were also able to measure the nodal position and the mortality and survival of any new shoots that were produced after uh, our treatments. And at the end of the experiments, we were able to determine the dry weights of the new material that had been produced. The effects of um, uh, heat on plants are really quite interesting and the responses of the seedlings are uh, really, really sort of fascinating. And it gives you a, an insight into just how quickly uh, plant tissues can respond to stress and how quickly plants can grow. In this particular slide, it's just one curve that shows you for um, seedlings that were heated at 60 degrees for durations of two, four, eight, and six, uh, 16 minutes, uh, the recovery in the 10 weeks after treatment. And what you uh, see in this slide is almost a mirror image. Uh, 10 weeks after treatment, the leaves that had been killed by the heat had been replaced virtually one for one, so that at the end of the 10 week period, all of the treatment plants and the controls were similar in height and similar in leaf number. In other words, no statistically um, difference, uh, different uh, in either of those characteristics, which is quite remarkable. And this particular graph always strikes me as almost being uh, a mirror image. The new leaves produced after uh, heat treatment match or mirror the leaves that were killed by that heat treatment. And then the tree, uh, the young tree reestablish its equilibrium and grows as if nothing happened. Uh, lower temperatures and shorter durations are sublethal uh, and decapitation to the same extent as heat killing of the uh, plant tissue elicited, elicited very similar epicormic and lignotuberous uh, shoot production and growth rates. Uh, recovery period of 10 weeks, as I've mentioned, and uh, what we see too is plants with different numbers of leaves left in check, uh, intact after uh, decapitation showed different rates of epicormic and lignotuberous shoot uh, survival as well, just as the heat treatment did. The nodal position from which uh, seedlings recover is usually the highest available nodal position of a shoot is the one that's utilised for recovery. So in mild treatments, it will be uh, an epicormic bud that's available higher up the stem. And then for a, the most severe treatments, the only buds that will be available will be the lignotuberous uh, buds that are down at the base of the trunk. So you get this range of bud positions, if you like. Uh, uh, the nodal positions vary, as you would expect. Mild stress, higher up in the, uh, the canopy, and then for the most severe stress, down at the lignotuber. When lignotubers uh, and epicormic buds and shoots are involved in recovery, um, the production of these shoots doesn't guarantee survival because many of the epicormic uh, buds and even more of the lignotuberous uh, uh, shoots will subsequently die. Uh, in the experiments that we're reporting here, um, about 50% of the uh, lignotuberous shoots uh, certainly died and there was a significant number of the epicormic shoots that also died. Usually, more of the lignotuberous shoots die after they've been produced than epicormic shoots, but arborists need to be aware that when you see buds developing, it doesn't necessarily mean that the tree is going to recover because of the, the, the high mortality rate, you may see lots of buds and then a number of weeks or months later, many of those have died. You can see in this particular uh, slide, the comparative um, 
mortality rates of both lignotuberous and epicormic shoots. And you can see the lignotuberous uh, mortality begins at about 50% and goes all the way up to 100% where all of the uh, lignotuberous shoots have died. And of course, the plant subsequently dies. And you can see with the epicormic shoots, you have very low rates of death at very mild stress. Uh, but as the stress increases, so too does the rate of epicormic shoot um, mortality. And ultimately, about half of the epicormic shoots that have been produced after a stress are also uh, dying back. The decapitation of heated plants showed that immediate decapitation of uh, damaged tissues resulted in greater height growth after heating than heated only plants. And plants decapitated immediately after heating behaved more like decapitated plants than they did heated plants. If decapitation uh, of the seedling was delayed a week, then plants responded like heated plants with decreased uh, height uh, increments and ultimately lower uh, dry weights, as we'll see. In all treatments, shoots were produced from the highest nodal positions that were available. And lignotuberous shoots were only pro uh, produced when all of the uh, epicormic buds had either been killed by the heat or had been removed in decapitation. Uh, this particular slide just shows you uh, the data for heating of plants at uh, 40 and 60 degrees. Uh, and it shows you the uh, height increment of um, for heated plants and a parallel decapitation. Not identical, but you can see they're very similar patterns uh, and there is no significant difference uh, in most of those um, height increments. Um, you can see here uh, heat treatment only uh, and then the treatment of um, both uh, delayed and immediate decapitation. And what this shows you is that if you have a heat treatment and you decapitate or remove the damaged tissue, you get uh, significantly higher uh, height increments in some of the treatments. Uh, not all, but in certainly in the, the uh, moderate range of treatments, which suggests that the removal of the damaged tissue uh, is an advantage in the recovery of the young seedlings, uh, which is uh, a handy thing to know in terms of management after stress. The production of new shoots after treatments showed that shoot production may take anything from three to 21 days after treatment, depending on the severity of the treatment imposed. Um, shoot production by decapitated plants was quicker than for heated plants. Uh, and the removal of heat damaged tissue uh, decreased shoot production time. It was also interesting to note that root tip growth commenced two to seven days before epicormic or lignotuberous shoot growth could be detected. So by removing the seedlings from their uh, containers, we could actually see when root tip growth commenced. And root tip growth recommenced after a stressful treatment in every case before you saw any sign of epicormic or lignotuber shoot production. We can also say that if root tip growth didn't recommence, then epicormic bud or uh, lignotuberous shoot development simply didn't occur and the plant invariably died. So by monitoring the root tip growth, we got, got a real insight into which of the seedlings were going to survive. The couple of other things that uh, we observed during this, um, immediately after decapitation or heat treatment in particular, uh, quite often the root tips browned, uh, which suggests there may have been a phenolic substance uh, produced as a result of the treatments. Even though the root tips themselves weren't subjected to the heat, they still changed colour. And uh, very often we could see the colour gradually uh, return to the normal white root tip growth. And it was only when the root tips were white that they were able to recommence uh, growth. So 
Uh, we also found that the killing of root tips occurs at about the same temperatures as cytoplasmic killing. So once you get to um, root tip temperatures of around 60 degrees for uh, three or four to eight minutes, and for 80 degrees, even after two minutes, um, the root tips start to die. Uh, not very often in natural circumstances will soil temperatures allow root tips to experience 60 to uh, 80 degrees centigrade, but it does occur, of course, in fires in the surface of the soil, and you can get damage to the root uh, roots growing there. Um, this shows you the different uh, growth rates of the root tips uh, after different treatments at 40, 60, and 80 for two minutes. And you can see that the uh, root tips that were heated at 40 and 60 degrees at the end of 10 weeks uh, had recovered and were growing pretty much uh, at the same rate as the control. No significant difference there. Uh, but at the 80 degree uh, treated plants, uh, only for two minutes, uh, their root tips were still growing at a very, very slow rate and were significantly slower than the control. Um, dry matter production uh, in the 10 week period uh, is also interesting. It shows you that in many cases, uh, dry matter production does depend on um, the level of the stress and whether the tree has been uh, immediately or um, uh, had a delayed decapitation. Um, immediate decapitation and uh, heated only are very similar. A delayed decapitation, particular, particularly at 80, shows a much reduced dry matter production. Uh, and for seedlings that were uh, heated at uh, uh, and decapitated at different levels, uh, what you find is that the dry matter, ten, dry matter production over the 10-week a recovery period. For the less severe treatments, by the end of 10 weeks, virtually no difference in dry matter production. For the more severe um, uh, treatments, dry matter production is significantly lower. And that's probably as you would expect uh, from a much uh, greater level of stress. Now, when we've been looking at lignotuberous uh, and epicormic shoots, the question that you might be asking is, well, how do we interpret these results and what do they mean for arborists? Well, the rapid height increment uh, after the loss of apical dominance uh, is, um, is to be expected because both fire and decapitation remove foliage and the removal of apical dominance and hormonal control allows very rapid response uh, and is a, a real competitive advantage uh, that allows young trees and, and healthy mature trees to put on photosynthetic um, surface very, very rapidly to re resume growth uh, and recovery. So a clear competitive advantage. We know now that the um, Killing temperature for root tips is as low as 60 degrees C for two minutes, uh, and that's consistent with the usual lethal plant cytoplasmic killing, killing range of 50 to 60 degrees uh, centigrade. Uh, before recovery of plants from shoot uh, development, root growth uh, resumed and is evident uh, prior to any evidence of um, bud burst or shoot recovery. And the effect of, um, of the stress caused by fire is often due to decapitation or removal of, uh, of foliage or defoliation. But there's also another component as the delayed decapitation, the effect of delayed decapitation showed. Um, there were no significant differences in dry matter production after treatments, unlike height increment, which suggests that the height increases were primarily due to increased internodal growth. And this can be interpreted as the young trees uh, getting back to a competitive um, uh, height where they access uh, solar radiation. Uh, and the dry weight data also showed that a double dose of stress, which was heat followed by delayed decapitation, 
uh, reduced dry matter production significantly. Um, so what happens there, of course, is uh, the usual, if you give a plant a double dose of stress, then the consequences are more severe than a single dose of the, uh, of the, of the stress on its own. Uh, early removal of heat damaged tissue accelerated both the recovery of uh, the seedlings, but also their hide increment and their dry matter production. When dealing with stressed trees, it's always worth noting um, whether the species that you are managing possess lignotubers or uh, epicormic buds. Uh, many people uh, are unaware that you've got these potential uh, uh, recovery systems just waiting to do their work. And quite often we see trees that have been um, damaged, removed, and their stumps ground out because no one's thought about the potential for epicormic shoot or lignotuberous shoot production. Uh, you also need to remember that some populations or species have lignotubers and others don't. Uh, and uh, the ecology uh, of the species often gives a clue. So for example, uh, if you've got a very wide ranging species uh, and it occupies uh, quite uh, stressful environments, almost certainly the species will have lignotubers in those populations, but in a more, more, more benign, uh, uh, milder environment, the populations may not have lignotubers. And, and that gives you an idea of how the tree is going to respond. Um, the rapid recovery uh, and growth of uh, plants by epicormic shoots uh, is interesting because in the early years, there may be no branch bark ridge development. And if there's no uh, branch bark ridge uh, development after one or two years, uh, that can be ca a cause for concern because what you want to have happen is you want the epicormic shoot to develop into a proper branch over time. And the development of the BBR is a sign that the uh, anatomy is transforming from that of an epicormic shoot with potentially poor attachment into a branch anatomy with a proper attachment and a strong attachment. So for arborists that are uh, in, involved in consulting, particularly in, in consulting that might involve uh, appearances before courts, uh, the presence of a BBR may assist you in determining whether you're dealing with uh, an epicormic shoot that has never really developed the normal branch anatomy, and in which case, if it hasn't developed the normal branch anatomy, uh, it may not have the strong and typical branch attachment. If roots are killed or damaged, um, even if the trunk or branch tissue survives and buds develop, the plant may not survive. So these results suggest that after a severe stress such as fire, the condition of the root crown and roots needs to be checked. If the tissue below the lignotuber is killed, for example, in young trees, there may be no buds available above to affect a recovery. Uh, and this may occur, for example, if you do uh, motor mower damage or uh, uh, brush cutter and trimmer damage under the lignotuber of a young tree before it's fully developed. Um, so you need to have the buds available for recovery to occur. If the root crown has been killed, then there may be no capacity for recovery because all of the available lignotuberous and epicormic buds have been killed by the particular stress. Um, root growth commenced before epicormic and lignotuberous bud development uh, every time and emphasizes the importance of a healthy root system. And in the old uh, arboricultural mantra that prevention is much better than cure, uh, this suggests that we should manage for the best soil conditions possible before, during and after uh, a stress. Uh, roots may be the key to successful shoot production and whole tree recovery. So if you can, uh, the use of mulch, irrigation, uh, decombaction, or a combination of these treatments to enhance 
uh, root survival may allow more rapid shoot development and much higher rates of uh, shoot survival than might otherwise be the case. Lignotubers are a last resort survival mechanism. If all else fails uh, to ensure the survival uh, of the plant, then the lignotuberous buds are activated. So the usual order of regeneration is epicormic buds high up in the branches of the canopy. If these have all been damaged or removed, then it's epicormic buds on lower branches. If they're damaged, it'll be epicormic buds on the trunk. And for then, if all of the epicormic buds on the trunk have been killed off, then finally it's the lignotuberous buds that take on the role of regeneration and recovery. Lignotuberous and epicormic shoots can be used to manipulate canopy structures, uh, formally and uh, structurally prune vandalized or damaged trees. Uh, they allow very rapid establishment of um, canopies for stressed trees. And they also allow the re-establishment of canopies for specimens that have been badly damaged. And this is quite common in the urban uh, in context. Knowledge of uh, the presence and understanding of the biology of dormant buds allows arborists to manage uh, canopy development structurally. Uh, it allows us to uh, achieve a much better shape, perhaps or design for a tree, and it allows us to manipulate uh, canopy regeneration. In other words, if you understand what epicormic and lignotuberous shoots can do, they provide arborists with a flexibility to manage canopies and to restore canopies both effectively and efficiently. Through proper management, arborists can re-establish canopies and restore valuable trees in a fraction of the time taken to grow them from a seedling. Under ideal conditions, lignotuberous shoots grow 27 centimetres in a week, six metres in a year, and epicormic shoots four metres in a year. For epicormic shoots, the principle to follow in managing shoots as they grow is don't let them get too long too quickly. You don't want too much weight on an attachment before a proper and strong branch attachment has developed. And what this usually means is pruning the shoots by between 33 and 50% of their length back to a bud or lesser branch um, so that you might need to do this for two or three or four or five years before an epicormic shoot has the anatomy of a proper strongly attached branch. Lignotuberous shoots, on the other hand, usually have a strong attachment. Uh, if there are multiple lignotuberous shoots developing, uh, then you may need to thin these down to one or uh, a few shoots, uh, mainly to avoid the risks of having codominant stems develop uh, with included bark. Uh, and that's a relatively simple arboricultural operation. If you see shoots developing from the base of the trunk, it, be, it can be difficult to know whether they are epicormic or lignotuberous. If you can't tell the difference because the shoots are so low down, treat them as if they were epicormic shoots, and that way you'll make sure that there are no uh, safety issues uh, that might cause you uh, problems later on. Uh, after fires in peri-urban areas, which unfortunately with climate change are becoming much more common here in Australia, but also in parts of the United States and Europe, um, Epicormic shoots that develop high up in the canopy of trees don't normally warrant any arboricultural intervention. Uh, they're relatively small, uh, and even if they're shed, they pose little risk. But if the fires are severe and the fire network of branches has been killed, epicormic shoots may be produced lower on the trunk, and there they have the much greater potential 
to become long and heavy before um, a strong branch attachment has been developed. In those cases, uh, regular inspection uh, by a, a well-qualified arborist is strongly recommended. Epicormic shoots and lignotuberous shoots can be absolutely enormous. Um, in this particular slide, which I know you'll have difficulty interpreting, the epicormic shoots here and here are over 70 metres in height. They are absolutely massive. And you can see that they were attached to this very large trunk and very poorly attached indeed. So managing epicormic shoots and lignotuberous shoots does place a significant burden on the arborist who's managing them. We need to know what they are, where they are, and what they do. I thoroughly enjoy working with both epicormic and lignotuberous shoots. And I hope that after this presentation, you've got some insights uh, into the behavior of both epicormic and lignotuberous. This concludes Dr. Greg Moore's talk on minimizing hazards arising from lignotubers and epicormic shoots. This talk was originally presented at the 2020 ISA Virtual Conference. The views and information expressed are those of the presenter. Please join us for another presentation in the ISA's Science of Arboriculture podcast series. Trees in every country. Trees, you know we can. Work together and learn what we need. Challenge.